Welcome to the Sword and Trial podcast. The Sword and Trial is a ministry of Founders Ministries, and Founders exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of local churches. I'm Tom Askell. And I'm Graham Gundon. I want to let you know or remind you of our national conference coming up this January, January 2023. It's the National Founders Conference, and the t- the title of the conference this year is What is Man? So Christian <laughs> Anthropology. And I have lots of good speakers there. First and foremost, Dr. Tom Askell. Uh, Joel Beakey will be there, Paul Walsh and Vody Bauckham and several others. And so uh, we'd love to have you down here. Um, the space is filling up really, yeah, really quickly. Is. So if you do intend to come, uh, make sure you sign up, uh, register for that conference uh, quickly. Um, January is a great time to be in Southwest Florida. It'll be blue skies, sun, That's right. just fresh air. It'll be great. You can take pictures and send them to all your friends up north and ask them what they're doing. So uh, <laughs> that's a fun way to spend a day. Well, today we're delighted to have with us Aaron Wren as our guest. Uh, he has written quite a bit of things that have uh, kind of taken over uh, different times and places in social media that has certainly captured my attention over the last few years. And we're going to talk to him about some of that. But let me just introduce him as a co-founder and senior fellow at the American Reformer. We've had Ben Dunson on here before. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ben's uh, kind of the editor of that. And, and that is a, a work that is worthy of your attention and worthy of your support. So I encourage you to look up American Reformer and get involved in what they are doing. Learn from them. He also writes on cultural topics at, at Substack. He's kind of a cultural critic, a journalist. He has a background in management consulting. So he does all kinds of things. And uh, he has his own website that you need to access. It's AaronRen.com, A-A-R-O-N-R-E-N-N.com. We'll link to all this so that you can easily access it, but you're missing out if you don't uh, avail yourself of the wonderful information that he continues to put out. So, Aaron, thank you so much for joining us today all the way from Indianapolis. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. I remember one of the things that uh, captured my attention a couple of years ago, maybe not even long ago, on the American Reformer, and they pointed us back to something that you had written earlier about how you assess the world and how Christians should be thinking about the world, specifically evangelicals, which we are, the the difference between the positive world that existed, the neutral world that uh, many of us kind of grew up in or took for granted, and now how we've transitioned into the negative world. And if we're not understanding that and still trying to live as if we are in the positive world, we're way out of bounds. But even in the neutral world, we're just doing things that are exacerbating problems and not really addressing issues uh, as need, they need to be addressed in helpful ways for people to think rightly about where God has us. So would you mind just kind of giving an overview? We'll link to that article. I think that article you, you mentioned, you've refined that. You continue to kind mm-hmm. of think a little more carefully about it. And we want folks to be familiar with that. But could you just give us an overview of what you mean by those three worlds? Sure. Go back to the 1950s, and it was the high water mark of church attendance in America. About half of adults attended uh, church every Sunday. Greater percentage of that were members. We still had prayer in schools. Christianity was part of our battle against the Soviet Union in the mm. Cold War. We added terms like under God to the, the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, we added in God we trust to the money. Uh, there was still a sort of Protestant establishment in America. So Christianity had a sort of normative status as part of American culture, or certainly Protestant Christianity did at that time. But starting in the 1960s, dated perhaps to the Kennedy assassination, 
Christianity started to go into a period of decline in America that continues to this day. Uh, that is a result of many factors, uh, the cultural upheavals of the 60s, the sexual revolution, the end of the Cold War. Many things had happened, uh, but church attendance went into decline in America. So we've had you know, declining church attendance in sort of Christianity as a religion lost its sort of incumbency status and Christian moral norms uh, began to get called into question and even rejected by society at large. And so I divide this period from, say, 1964 to the present into three distinct phases or worlds. And these names of these worlds, the positive, neutral, and negative world, refers to the way that society views Christianity and its moral system, the status of Christianity in society. Historically, we did a lot of thinking about how the church should look at society, like a. Richard Niebuhr's book, Christ and Culture. This is much more about how society views the church. So from 1964 to 1994, although it was a period of decline for Christianity in many ways, Christianity still was viewed positively by society. If you were known as a good church-going man, that would boost your social status. People liked you. And Christian moral norms were still basically the moral norms of society outside of niche subcultures. Around about 1994 and extended to 2014, the decline of Christianity went through a threshold in which it was no longer uh, viewed positively anymore, but it wasn't really viewed negatively either. It was sort of viewed in a neutral way. It was almost like one more lifestyle or affectation or hobby you could have in a very pluralistic public square. So we might meet, uh, and I'd say, I'm a Christian. You'd say, that's great. I'm a vegan. Let's talk. It was something of that nature. Then around 2014, we went through a second threshold in the decline of Christianity's status in America and entered what I call the negative world, where Christianity, uh, far from being viewed positively or neutrally, is actually viewed negatively, especially in the elite domains of society. If you want to work on Wall Street or in Silicon Valley, being known as a devout Christian does not help your cause, mm-hmm. right? It downgrades your social status to be known as somebody who goes to church and believes in the Bible. At this point in time, the many of the moral norms of Christianity, particularly around sexuality, have been explicitly rejected. And in fact, traditional Christian views on those topics are now viewed as a threat to the new public moral order. And so, although I view the positive world really as this period of decline from 64 to 94, you could go all the way back from 2014, essentially, to the founding of the country, and being a Christian, or certainly being a Protestant Christian, was viewed pretty well. You certainly didn't suffer any downside, or go back all the way to the start of the Christendom era with Constantine. Well, now we've entered a completely unprecedented period for people in America, where Christianity, for the first time in the 400-year history of our country, is now viewed negatively by elite society in a very public way. And it's a challenging environment to adapt to. Yeah, that's a wonderful uh, explanation of that. And I was just thinking back on my own life. I was born in 57, and so I, I lived through that positive world. That's kind of grew up when I first started serving a church in Dallas in the 1980s, early 1980s, uh, North Dallas. We had all kind of people that came to our church, and it, it was just known that if you moved to Dallas and were hoping to get into middle management or upper management, you needed to go to the right churches. 
You had right. to kind of be known as mm-hmm. just what you said, you know, a God-fearing man that was a part of uh, this type of church. And from that, coming to Cape Coral, Florida, where those things weren't as intense as they were in North Dallas, now then, my children, it's negative uh, in their lines of work for them to be conservative Christians and to be known as that. And most of their work now is you know, remote, so it's not like they're going to an office space all the time, but still to stand up or to uh, take exception to the common things that are being put out by some of their companies, it's very negative for Mm -hmm. them and they do so at risk. You make a very good point in that you highlight an important factor, which is that this varies by geography. Mm. The negative world is really most intense in major coastal metropolises like San Francisco, Mm -hmm. for example, or maybe a Chicago in the interior. These kind of big urban centers and in more elite industries. When you get into you know the interior of the country, more like right here in Indianapolis, it's not really a negative environment here yet. In many ways, you can be very open about being a Christian, and that's fine because lots of civic leaders here are Christian. Uh, in fact, I would have even said up until maybe 10 years ago, it w- you would not admit publicly here that you were an atheist. People would just wouldn't play in this society. People would would really think less of you. Well, now you can openly confess to being an atheist. So we're getting into more of the neutral world and to some extent here. Uh, But because, you know, global trends, the media, corporate policies affect everything, uh, you know, the negative world is coming. So uh, there's a there's a quip the the future is here. It's just unequally distributed. And that's very true. The negative world is most intense in college towns and, you know, government centers, corporate centers, things of that nature. You go back to, you know, where I'm from in rural Southern Indiana is still the positive world in many respects. Mm -hmm. Nevertheless, uh, this trend is real and it's happening and it's marching across even North Dallas, which certainly isn't what it was back when you started serving in the ministry there. Yeah, right. I remember uh, speaking to a group of pastors probably four years ago about some of the social justice issues that I was just trying to get my mind around and get some clarity on. And uh, a couple, I was in central Florida and several of them pastored rural, rural communities. And so they said, man, we don't know anything about this. This is not, you know, critical race theory, these type of things uh, doesn't have anything to do with our people. And I didn't have as clear, as much clarity as I think I do now, but was saying, well, it's coming. You're, you're going to not be able to avoid it. They will make you care at some mm-hmm. point. And I've heard from them since then, said, man, you know, we had a school teacher that had uh, this type of sensitivity training. And we've got a guy who's just been, un- been fired because he wouldn't put a rainbow flag on his desk and things that they couldn't have imagined that hit them, hit them a little differently time-wise, but yeah, unequal distribution of the future that is here. That's a good way to put that. You really see it, especially in elite institutions. You know, all institutions are not created equal. What happens at Harvard, Princeton, and Yale? What happens at Goldman Sachs? You know, what happens at the New York Times, the Washington Post? These things count for a lot more than what happens at your local community college, you know, your local bank, your your local newspaper. And one of the things we see is this sort of anti-Christian view has really been captured and embedded in a lot of elite media. The Atlantic just ran an article in the last couple of weeks, how the rosary became a hate symbol or an extremist symbol, I think it was. And, you know, I'm not a Catholic, but that goes to show just open willingness to essentially directly attack the symbols of Christianity. And again, there was some blowback and they had to change it. 
but this is how they think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, this is how they think. And increasingly, we see that they're willing to express uh, direct hostility uh, towards Christianity and Christian symbols in ways that they would not have done uh, mm-hmm. in the past. Mm-hmm. Now, part of your analysis, as you look at a positive, neutral, negative world, is you've kind of looked at the the strategies of the church, or maybe even specifically the evangelical Protestant church, in dealing with the different worlds that they live in. So what did the church do to be uh, culturally relevant or to evangelize in the positive world? What do they do in the ne- neutral world? And we haven't really quite figured out what we're going to do in the negative world. Maybe you could tell us about those strategies. Right. Evangelicalism, in my view, really came to the fore in the 1970s with the decline of the mainline denominations. And so if you, again, go back to the 50s and this high watermark of church attendance, this was mostly people in mainline congregations like the Presbyterian Church USA, which, mm-hmm. you know, was, you know, wasn't that then, but that's what it is now, you know, the mm-hmm. Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, these sorts of mainline congregations. And they really went into a period of decline with this entry into the period of decline of Christianity in America, they couldn't adapt. And I would say a lot of the more fundamentalist-oriented churches, they did okay. They managed to essentially hold their own, but that remained essentially, I would say, a niche phenomenon. It really hasn't expanded outside of its uh, its niche, except maybe in the Pentecostal world. But you start getting into, I think, of as you know, kind of mainstream evangelicalism, uh, you know, maybe Pentecostalism. These groupings really proves superior in adapting to changing times. And I would say the strength and the weakness of evangelicalism is its ability to adapt, its ability to figure out what's going on out in the world and kind of find a way to be relevant to it uh, in a sense. That could be very bad, but that can also be very good. So in the 70s, we saw the Jesus movement, uh, you know, sort of the Christian expression of the counterculture. And then really, as we were in that positive world, I identified two major strategies that come to the fore, two major groups of people who saw the decline of church attendance, the decline of Christianity, and took two very different approaches to it. One is what I call the culture war movement. So this is the Jerry Falwells, the Pat Robertsons. These are people who saw that things were going the wrong way, and they're like, we're going to fight back. We're going to take back the culture. We're going to get involved in politics and start turning back the clock on some of these policy changes that have been put in place, whether that be Roe versus Wade or prayer school or anything they were upset about. Mm-hmm. And so this group originally, they were mostly Democrats. I mean, evangelicals were Democrats into the 1980s, eventually became very involved in Republican politics. And so now we've got essentially the culture war, religious right, as we know it. And the very name moral majority, if you remember Jerry Falwell's organization, is only plausible to say in the positive world. You would never create an organization called the moral majority today. (laughs) Whether Christians were a moral majority then is maybe uh, questionable, but it was at least plausible to claim so, much like Nixon's silent majority. A second group is what I call the seeker sensitivity movement, uh, pioneered by people like Bill Hybels uh, or Rick Warren. And these people saw the decline of church attendance. They're like, well, how do we reach the unchurched? How do we reach people who are turning away from churches? So Guys like Hybels would go knock on doors. If people weren't going to church, he asked them why they didn't go to church. So he tried to create churches that were more consumer-friendly, that were more aligned with this emerging baby boom suburbanization 
that was going on. It incorporated many features of the uh, Jesus movement around like contemporary music, informal liturgy, things of that nature. And, you know, this became essentially the progenitor of what we now know as essentially the suburban non-denominational megachurch. And there are probably a lot of Southern Baptist churches who kind of follow this model too, depending on where they're located. It's such a diverse denomination after all. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this group, I think, in many ways became kind of the evangelical mainstream. This is what we think of as an evangelical. It's a suburban megachurch, very heavily baby boom dominated. So these two came out of the positive world, and they've sort of continued to go forward into today. The neutral world saw the development of a new strategy that I call the cultural engagement strategy. And you can think of cultural engagement as a couple of things. One, it is the opposite of the culture war, if you want to think about it. Rather than fighting with the culture, it's we're going to affirm what can be affirmed in the culture. There are things that we like about the culture. Um, You know, we like art. uh, We like the life of the mind. We like things of those nature. But we're going to critique the things that we think need to be critiqued in the culture. But it was a more, you know, a less hostile stance toward the culture. Uh, Another way to potentially look at it is as, a seeker sensitivity for a more urban America. Mm-hmm. So, and in the seventies, uh, you know, big cities were going down the tube. Urban centers were going down the tube. New York almost went bankrupt. There was a movie, I think in 1981 called escape from New York in which in the future, New York city had been turned into a gigantic prison colony, essentially. <laughs> and, you know, starting in, in the eighties, the, the city started to come back a little bit in the eighties, although they still were really, really bad early nineties with the crack wars and all of the hyper violence that occurred uh, in, in that era. Then with the election of Giuliani and others, you know, crime collapsed, cities got cleaned up and young people and professionals and corporations started to stream back into urban centers. And so this is where the, the, culture is very different. It's a little younger. It's more of a youth oriented culture in some respects. Uh, it's younger baby boomers and, you know, generation X initially now a lot of millennials, Gen Z. And, uh, it's also, you know, very progressive in many ways. It's very people who are very motivated by, you know, high end careers, you know, artistic endeavors, things of that nature. And so in essence, this came in as like, how do we reach this set of people? And so you can think about a lot of the people we associate with the urban church movement, like a Tim Keller, uh, I would put in there. Or I'd put someone like Andy Crouch uh, in there, or a Mako Fujimura, if you know him, just you know, a very well-respected artist, uh, mm-hmm. even by, by by secular standards. It's like we need to be present in these centers. It's much more of an elite focus orientation mm-hmm. just by the nature of where this thing was geographically. And again, this continues to go on in, into, uh, I think, today's world. As we get to the negative world, the question is what evangelical strategies were going to be adopted. And the truth is there really have not been specific negative world strategies that had come to the fore. Yeah, Rod Dreher, who's, East, who's Eastern Orthodox and formerly Catholic, wrote a book probably four or five years ago called The Benedict Option, which laid out his idea for what we should do in a negative world. He doesn't use that phrase, but he's using that same uh, same logic of the kind of world that we're entering. And by and large, evangelicals didn't like it turned away from it. And I think there are a lot of reasons for that. First off, we don't go from monasticism. So when you name something after a Catholic monk, <laughs> not going to, not going to get big uptake in the world, uh, there, uh, you know, in, in kind of the Protestant world. Uh, and I, I think 
The idea of the monastery as a model led people to assume he was talking about running away and hiding inside the walls of a monastery, which is not what he was talking about. He was trying to talk about the rich community life that they had, as well as their commitments of stability to stay mm-hmm. with a particular group of people. But nevertheless, people took away from that. He's saying to head for the hills, and they didn't like that. Mm. And it, especially Protestants, that was viewed as sort of turning away from the Great Commission. Like, we can't stop trying to reach people for Christ. And so mm-hmm. I think there were some things in this book that legitimately turned off uh, evangelicals, but I also think that the reaction was disproportionate to those. And I think for a long time, evangelicals have kind of been in denial um, about the fact that we now live in this negative world. Although I think that's now starting to change, uh, which may be one reason why Rogers' most recent book, Live Not By Lies, mm-hmm. which is about Christians under the Soviet uh, uh, regime, sold a lot more copies and has been much more heavily uh, you know, resonated with, with people. So I think we're coming into this negative world, and we need to rethink how we do things. And that's not to say that all of these other strategies are going to go away uh, they're going to continue. Uh, one of the things that I say is in a negative world, we're not going to have a one-size-fits-all strategy or a two-size-fits-all strategy. And then the, the future being unevenly distributed, there are going to be places where those models continue to work, but increasingly it's going to be challenging for them. And even if you continue, say, being a, a seeker-sensitive person or being a cultural warrior or being a cultural engager, you are going to think about have to think about how do you adapt that to this negative world. So that's something that is very important. It's something that I'm going to continue to try to work on and think about more in the coming months and years. Mm. You said in a recent podcast um, that there, and I'd recommend Aaron's podcast, the Aaron Wren Show. Uh, you said that there are three parts to any strategy. Um, there's identifying the problem, uh, finding a solution, and then communicating the problem and the solution. Uh, and I think right now we're kind of in that phase where we're trying to find the solution to the problem of the negative world. Um, are there any, I mean, stra- in terms of strategies, solutions, are there any places that you're seeing, okay, this, this church or this group or this community, they're doing this well, and this is, seems to be working for them. What are maybe some bedrock principles in those different strategies that you see that you think could possibly work in other places? Let me just give you a couple examples of things that I believe we need to be thinking about for the negative world. One is the structure of pastoral ministry. And this applies to people in lay professions as well, but it especially applies to people in pastoral ministry. The last few years have seen tremendous increase in the pressure being brought to bear on pastors. All of the surveys that are being done talk about all these growth in the number of people who are thinking about leaving the ministry. You know, we've seen any number of people just quit their pulpits because they can't handle it. Uh, and it's, you can't really escape it. If you try to engage on racial justice, you're going to get attacked. If you don't engage on racial justice, you're going to get attacked. If you require a mask, you're going to get attacked. If you don't require a mask, you're going to get attacked. And so I think COVID really brought to the fore mm. the fact that there are some just fundamental internal divisions within evangelicalism as well as fundamental conflicts with the world that are going to bring enormous amounts of pressure to bear on pastors. And so pastors are going to have to think about how they structure their ministry in order to make the, be able to bear up under the pressure uh, in the way that maybe Paul talked about the way he had to bear up under pressure uh, in, in the Bible. So one thing is 
how to avoid becoming so financially dependent on your paycheck from your church that you're unable to proclaim the church, the truth or make, mm-hmm. uh, you, you know, the wisest decisions that you think a, as a leader, you know, a lot of people who are pastors have big families, they have no money. And therefore, I mean, it's incredibly stressful on their marriage, their kids, as all this stuff comes to bear. How can we think about doing things differently? So, uh, you know, is is there more, should there be more of a bivocational model so that people at least have part-time employment so that their entire paycheck doesn't come from their church? Uh, a pastor by the name of C.R. Wiley uh, out in the Pacific Northwest, uh, he uh, ended up, you know, getting in, buying some rental properties. So he had a little income from rental properties. He's like, that income helps me to be bolder and not have all this pressure bearing down on me where, you know, I can't leave my kids if I lose my job. Mm. You could also think about things like, hey, you're going to have to have a lot more peers and a lot more close relationships with people uh, in order to, you know, be able to just have that support network. Just having a support network is you know, going to be something that is very increasingly uh, important. And we're going to have to maybe select for people who have a little bit different personality traits. Some people are very comfortable in a high conflict environment. I am not comfortable in a high <laughs> conflict environment. I'll be the first person to tell you, I don't like conflict. Other people thrive on it. Maybe some people thrive on it too much. And so we need to get to people as we think about what are the, what are the personality traits that you need to have to be successful in ministry. One of them is a more comfort with being in a much more high pressure, high stress conflict ridden environment. So just thinking about things like that so that we can have ministers who are able to thrive in the midst of this negative world and speak boldly the truth uh, and not be subjected to too many pressures uh, because, you know, again, because they can't feed their family or, or whatever is going to be something that I think is, is important. That's great uh, observation. It, it just is sent a flood of thoughts and memories through my own mind, mm-hmm. you know, of, uh, uh, I've been in the ministry for nearly 45 years now. You've seen all three worlds. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> At the same time, sometimes, um, Psalm 120 is one of my favorite Psalms. Verse seven says, he, he talks about, I, I live too long in the amidst of my enemies. And he says, well, I'm a man of peace. I'm, I'm for peace. But when I speak, they're for war. It's so mm-hmm. it's like, okay, yeah, you can have peace if you keep your mouth shut. But if you speak, then just know that it's going to cost you. There's going to be opposition. And I'm preaching through Romans right now. And he says at the end of chapter 12, you know, as far as possible, live at peace with all men. So we should strive for peace, knowing that it's not always possible. As much as it depends on you, do this. But sometimes you can't avoid that. And I do think that our uh, there, there's great pressure on pastors to to do good and right things, which we ought to desire to do, be sensitive and, and be kind-hearted, but to see those hijacked into, okay, now compromise and don't say right. this, don't address this, or say these things this way. I, um, you know, we've, we've had this within our own circles in the Southern Baptist Convention in years past, uh, this, this uh, council that we should exercise pronoun hospitality. So if someone tells mm-hmm. you these are my pronouns, then the loving, hospitable thing is to use those pronouns. And my own take on that is, well, you, you, 
you know, that's Rod Dreher, don't live by lies. Don't encourage somebody to live a lie. Mm-hmm. If God made them a man, they're a man. And if you do anything to try to massage their delusions into thinking they're other than what God says is real, <clears throat> you're not loving them. So it's it's everywhere. I mean, what, what you've just articulated is so good, and it's helpful for pastors, those like Graham and me, to think about these things. How are we going to minister in a world where these types of temptations and pressures uh, increasingly are uh, put upon us. Yeah, you know, and it strikes me that the pronoun hospitality, not only I think is it, it's unethical, you know, I think it's deceptive and it's encouraging people in their deception, self-deception, but it also does strike me as a, uh, a neutral world strategy in the midst of a negative world as well. And I don't know how much um, trying to adopt neutral world strategies in a negative world can lead a person to doing unethical mm, things. Mm-hmm. I, I think maybe that's that's maybe more part of a possibility. Of yeah. yeah, Aaron, you, you used Tim Keller as an example uh, in this, which I thought was just so helpful about uh, the way he, I think it was a book he wrote or in the neutral world that just received all kind of accolades. Uh, then in the negative world, a republication of it or the, the, the me- same message repackaged and it just got slammed. Uh, can, can you explain well, that? Yeah, so, you know, Keller, uh, his ministry almost perfectly bookends the, the neutral world. He started his church in 1989, and, you know, Giuliani was elected in 94, and, you know, that's when crime collapsed in New York. And I always tell people about Keller, though, never forget when he went to New York with three young kids, it was a war zone, right? Mm-hmm. He was not going to today's New York. Th- this was one of the most courageous moves anyone had had ever made. And in fact, multiple other people turned down the job before he, he took it. People thought he was crazy. Uh, but he found a way to speak into that environment. And he wrote a, the book that sort of made him famous was called um, The Reason for God. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe it came out in 2007. And it was a you know, nice apologetic for Christ. It's, you know, sort of like, here's reasons why we should, you know, why we should believe in God, et cetera. It was a bestseller, I, I think. And it wasn't entirely because of the changes in the world, but after that book came out, he read Charles Taylor's A Secular Age and realized he needed to incorporate some of Charles Taylor's insights uh, about the experience of the modern age to sort of update the apologetics. And he wrote a different book, maybe in 2013. I don't remember the exact date. I think it was called Making Sense of God. Uh, or something of that nature, which wasn't an update of the reason for God, but it was, you know, it's sort of in the same sort of vein. And it wasn't savaged by any means, but it was not a bestseller. Mm -hmm. It did not, you know, it didn't really hit the zeitgeist uh, in the way that his, uh, you know, his reason for God had, or the way that his 2010 Lausanne conference uh, speech went viral. And so kind of the world changed and some of the things that worked in the, uh, you know, in the neutral world don't really work as effectively today. Mm -hmm. Keller helped me to uh, finally wake up to what was going on. I think it was 2017. I came across a tweet of his in which he said something. I I used to have it memorized, but it's basically this, that the gospel is not primarily about social justice. It's primarily about reconciling God and man through Jesus Christ or something like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, you know, that's pretty you know, cut and dried and meat and potatoes. And the, the responses to that by all kinds of people, people that I had had respect for in the evangelical world and beyond, 
they came after him. That's what's wrong with you evangelicals. That's what's wrong with you white evangelicals. You just don't get it. You keep perpetuating this nonsense. And I'm thinking, this is Tim Keller. And he tried to defend right. himself. And after a while, he just gave up. He said, he said, I said, primarily, and it didn't matter. They were not going to let him up. And uh, that, for me, was a moment of saying, oh, okay. If Tim Keller can't say these essential gospel things any longer without this pushback, then we need to wake up and realize the world has indeed changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that the hostility that's being directed toward them, him is an example of the shift into this sort of negative world. I mean, Ann, if you go back to 2010, during the 2000s, I mean, there was virtually no criticism of Tim Keller mm-hmm. um, whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And I mean, if you even disagreed with something that he said, you know, people— they wouldn't necessarily hate you for it, but it would be seen as, oh, my goodness, how audacious to say that you disagree with Tim Keller. Wow, you're, you're, you're bold there. Uh, but now, Ian, you're right. He's hearing it from both sides. Yeah. And now he's getting attacked in ways that he didn't get attacked before. And it's an example of how the world has changed. Uh, and, you know, there's no escape, even for the guy who was known for being this master communicator who mm-hmm. knew how to deal with the tough questions and, you know, massage any interview with secular people. And like now it's just like, you know, you're a horrible person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And the reason, the reason is because of the, the message is because of what we believe. Right. And I, I do sense um, there's a great deal of pressure to water down the message in hopes that you will be perceived as more loving and sensitive and warm and welcoming than if you just say straightforwardly, you know what, this is God's world. He created it. He rules. He reigns. Jesus Christ is the only Savior. If you don't repent and trust the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to spend eternity under the judgment of God. I mean, that's hate speech today. Mm-hmm. And it, it does, I, there, there are ways you can say that where, you know, you almost take delight at the thought of people burning in hell. And that's horribly wrong, obviously so. But you cannot expect to be applauded in this negative world by speaking plainly and simply what God has revealed in his word. And if you think that you can, and you start trimming off the rough edges of that revealed truth, then you're going to wind up offering something less than the saving message of the gospel. And I see that happening all around me in the circles that I'm in, and and it grieves me. And I do think the assessment that you've given uh, if, if we could help people to think about this, wait a minute, you know, they're going to, it's the message that is hated. We ought to be as loving and as kind we can be, but we need to understand what love is. Love does right. not compromise the truth. It rejoices in the truth. There's a great line in Acts where Paul says, I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. Mm-hmm. They say that the whole counsel of God, not an exquisitely curated selection of God's <laughs> counsels guaranteed to appeal to the sophisticated Roman audience. But I also think if you look at Paul, he got in lots of trouble, but he didn't go looking for trouble. That's right. And this is where it's easy to push back. I think sometimes on the neutral world people, but a lot of times the culture war movement has been deliberately provocative Mm -hmm. and the incentive structure of social media and things of that nature sort of rewards bomb throwing and extreme takes. (laughs) You can draw a big audience like that. And, and so uh, I, I can go back uh, to 
say, Thessalonians, if, if you remember when Paul started the church in Thessalonica, it was like a massive eruption, mm-hmm. riots, all this stuff, and yet he writes to them that they should try to live peaceful, quiet lives. <laughs> and so I think there is a sense in which we shouldn't go looking for trouble. Yeah. You know, trouble can find us, and we shouldn't you know, shirk away from um, you know, proclaiming the, the entire truth. And yet, a lot of times, I think we've gone looking for trouble, or we've yeah. e- even essentially built a business off looking for trouble. Right. Uh, in, in a sense, you know, if the New York Times read a hit piece on Pat Robertson, he could fundraise off of it That's on right. <laughs> the 700 Club the next day. And so I think there is there is something that we have to be careful in this negative world about how we engage. And, uh, you know, I would say, let's not go looking for trouble <laughs> if we can avoid it. We have the trouble will find us, I'm sure. And we have to meet that test, but let's not go creating gratuitous problems for ourselves. Yeah, I love that. I, the, John Flavel is a, a Puritan that I greatly appreciate. And he has this line in one of his books. I think it was on Mystery of Providence. But he, he says that the preachers of a crucified Christ ought to have a crucified style. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, we ought to, to not mm-hmm. only look at the truth that God's given to us, but we need to look at the one whom we follow and see his meekness, his gentleness, uh, his... Uh, willingness to receive children and those who were despised in society felt comfortable around him. And yet he didn't obviously budge on any truth. He spoke the truth, hard truth, but he did so knowing that he was headed to the cross. And I think for Christians, if we remember that our master was slaughtered, he was crucified um, for the sake of the glory of God and bringing sinners to God, then it will help us because we do get pressure from both sides. We get pressure from the cultural warriors where you're just a bunch of mamby-pambies because you're not out there throwing punches all the time. And then we get pressure from those on the left. How dare you? You're so unloving. You're so hateful because Mm -hmm. you think that if people don't agree with you, then they're under God's wrath and judgment. And it just keeps coming back to this one standard that God's given us. We have a book. We have the Word of God revealed. And we've got to lash ourselves to that and leave consequences to him and do the, the best we can, not only in proclaiming Christ, but doing so in the spirit of Christ. There's one thing I think that's really helpful about your analysis and that it, it helps us from going off into uh, two different extremes, two different ditches. First, you know, there are those who I think, uh, they like to think of the church as kind of living in a vacuum where it doesn't really matter what the culture is like. It doesn't really matter what your own community is like. The church is called to preach the gospel and preach the whole counsel of the word of God, no matter what the, which is true, we are, but we do live in a context, mm-hmm. right? And we often talk about uh, preaching, the, the Westminster Larger Catechism talks about the uh, the duty of the preacher to preach to the necessity and the capacity of the hearer. And mm-hmm. so there are things that the mm-hmm. hearer needs to to hear and there's things that they can and cannot hear, mm-hmm. right? And so we need to be thoughtful about our strategies in pre- presenting the gospel, preaching the word of God. Uh, but then there are those, um, I think those churches, those Christian communities who um, tie their strategy so much to the culture, so much to where the culture is headed. And I think you do see this particularly in the neutral world, but you can see it in the, with the cultural culture warriors as well, um, that what they preach begins to be directed by whatever the culture looks That's like, right. whatever the context that they're in right. looks like. And so those are two different extremes. I think that it's really easy for Christians, for the church to fall into either one of those ditches when we need to not, I'm not saying we need to take a median place right, position right. all the time. Um, sometimes the culture demands that we veer closer to one side than the other, but um, we need to be um, considered about what the community is that we are living in and what we're preaching in is and what they value. And then also what does the word of God tell us to, to proclaim? 
Yeah, it's a great word. And uh, we've just published a book here at Founders called Accommodation and Compromise that tries to address that very thing. Looks at what Paul teaches as his own kind of uh, philosophy of ministry, 1 Corinthians 9, that we must be willing to accommodate. Become a Jew to the Jews, become as one without law to those without law, though never being without the law of Christ. But in becoming all things to all men, don't compromise. Don't mm-hmm. give up what God has said. So if you're interested in um, getting that book, you can go to the Founders website, and it's available in our store. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for your time today. And we, we just praise God for the gifts he's given you and the way that you're stewarding those gifts and service to so many people, including us. Tell our listeners how they can follow you on social media. Where are you located? The best way to keep up with all my work is to subscribe to my newsletter at AaronRen.com, A-A-R-O-N-R-E-N-N.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Aaron underscore Wren if you so desire. Okay. Thank you very much for being with us today, and thank you for tuning in to The Sword and Trial. We look forward to having you join us again on the next episode of this podcast.